Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Be back in just a few seconds with Larry Wilkerson. We're going to continue our discussion about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, please don't forget the donate button there. Come over to the website. Uh, we can't do this without you. Uh, subscribe and most importantly, get on the email list and, and share the stories. I'll be back in just a few seconds with Larry Wilkerson. So we're back with Larry. He's going to join us now. Uh, Larry was the chief of staff for Colin Powell when he was secretary of state. Thanks for joining us again, Larry. Good to be with you, Paul. So when I look at what the Americans are doing and saying, and then look at what the Russians are doing and saying, let me start with the Americans. Um, this all seems to be, uh, certainly from the American side, all about, quote unquote, American prestige, American supposed strategic positioning. How could you ever say some country can't join NATO? The thing is, there's no way that Europe and, and even the U.S. probably, but certainly they're never going to get consensus amongst NATO countries for the Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, so it's actually in the Americans' interest right now, and the British, all the saber rattling and all the rhetoric, they must be thanking their lucky stars. Ukraine is not in NATO, as they've made clear. They don't want to send troops into, into the Ukraine to defend Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, it, it, the whole thing would is nuts. Uh, but when I look at, look at it from the other side, uh, for the Russians, uh, what difference does it make? If, even if the Americans put nuclear weapons in Ukraine, is it actually more of a threat than the nuclear weapons that are already pointed at Moscow from other Eastern European and Western European countries and American ICBMs? And, uh, you know, Russia has deterrence, not just their missiles, but more importantly, their submarines. Uh, like a lot of this is, it, does, it seems more about whether it's domestic public opinion uh, you know, stoking nationalism, uh, making money for military industrial complexes. First and foremost, the Americans, they're getting 200 mil more million dollars go to Ukraine f to arm the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Of course, who gets that 200 million dollars but American arms manufacturers? The th I, I was telling somebody, I got interviewed the other day by somebody about my wrestling film, you know, that's Wrestling with Shadows film. And I said, you know, wrestling's all theater. But sometimes, like when Goldberg drop-kicked Bret Hart, he's supposed to barely touch the guy's chin, but Goldberg made a mistake and actually knocked Bret in the head because in spite of it being theater, accidents happen. And Bret was really knocked out and that he had a stroke. So in the context of this crazy bravado and theater and pissing match, uh, shit really can happen, and then, of course, it gets very dangerous. Uh, am I reading this wrong? Not at all. I, I think you're right, and your metaphor is a good one. The history of warfare for the last 5,000 years would indicate that often what you just described is the case. Let's look at some of your initial comments. I think this is the most nonsensical, illogical alliance palaver I've ever heard in my life and I've lived quite a while. Let's just look at what we're talking about. The essence of NATO, it's very raison d'etre. 
its difference, its reason for being the most successful political and military alliance, arguably, in history, is Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all. That was unprecedented when it was done. It made uh, people in the Congress, especially the Senate, it made people like Dean Acheson and others stand up on their hind legs and tiptoes because no one had ever done anything like, look at what we've done. We've gone to war with NATO in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Libya. Where was Article 5? Well, I'll tell you, it was non-existent. The NATO alliance is defunct, and we are desperately, we being principally Washington, trying to resurrect it. And we're trying to resurrect it on out-of-area operations, and more importantly, on expansion. The more members, the more it seems relevant. This is ludicrous. And I, I for one, can't understand why Joe Biden can't understand that and do something about it. You know, what I would do about it is I would rein it in now and begin to peel it back with the aspiration that some president in the future will get rid of it because it is nothing but this, what it is today, a bone to pick between two really relevant powers in the world, Russia and the United States. And that's not a bone we want to pick. You know, maybe after World War II, maybe... A lot of people of goodwill, in a sense, and I, and I had these long conversations with Daniel Ellsberg now, and, and I'm kind of thinking of him, but I'm, I don't think he was the only one, who really believed after World War II, the Soviet Union represented the same kind of global threat to the world as Hitler and Germany did. I get how people of goodwill believe that, but... Well, you know, I think with Joe Stalin, I, I take your points and I know where you're going with Joe Stalin. They were close to the truth. <laughs> well, let me let me make it for people. Who, well, 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 not for Ellsberg. Ellsberg doesn't diminish what Stalin did internally. But Ellsberg, you know, in terms of nuclear policy and elsewise, and, and I think there's lots of documentation on this now. Uh, the Soviet Union never had any plans for any kind of first strike. They were always in a defensive position in terms of nuclear. There was never any serious planning for invading uh, Western Europe. It was the Soviet Union wasn't a military threat. If it was any kind of threat at all, and, and, there's, and there's some quote from Eisenhower in, in this direction, the real threat was the national liberation movements all gravitating towards socialism and, and some backing an alliance from the Soviet Union, which wasn't even that serious, but it was some, the Soviet Union did something to support national liberation movements. But, but the- Well, you can't, let me, let me just intercede yeah, here. You cannot have your, you can't have your cake and eat it here too, in this instance. Uh, well, I've, I've never understood that phrase because I've never understood having a cake without eating it, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, what is the point? Yeah. I, me neither. Why would why would you want cake if you couldn't eat it? Yeah, I'm just using the <laughs> the, the the stupid statement. Yeah, go ahead. Go um, ahead. As long as they had thirty thousand nuclear weapons, they were a military threat. Well, I I I, I just go and quoting Ellsberg here, which is that that when when uh, the Soviet Union had the possibility 
of actually having more ICBMs than the United States did. Uh, and and th when the Air Force and Kennedy were being told and Kennedy repeating and he knew better that th saying the Soviet Union had a thousand ICBMs and then they found out they actually only had four. Uh, for Ellsberg, that, that meant they weren't planning an aggressive nuclear strategy and that it was all based on a defensive approach. Uh, and they never had serious plans of marching uh, into Western Europe. So NATO was really based on a kind of big lie that, that there was this uh, you know, potential existential threat to Western Europe. The United States is there to defend democracy and so on. Now move ahead. Now to quote. Let me, let me, let me, let me interject again. Reality again. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. You're looking at 300 Russian divisions that had just mauled 200 Wehrmacht divisions, the best divisions on the face of the earth. No question about it. They had just mauled them. They had mauled them principally by putting human fodder in front of them. They weren't better than they. They didn't have better tanks. They didn't have better airplanes. The T-34 was a decent tank, but it couldn't stand up to the average German tank unless it swarmed on it and was willing to lose 800 to their two. They beat the best army in the world, but they did it on 2 million plus dead. And to look at that war machine and look at what they were doing in Berlin in particular, raping every German woman they came across. Helmut Kohl actually told H.W. Bush that probably a third to a half of people born in 45 and 46 were Russian, at least halfway. Um, you couldn't do anything but fear that. Uh, George. Okay. I, 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 well, I acknowledge that. I can get it. Coming out of World War II, I get there could that it was not unreasonable to believe that the Soviet Union might have been a threat to Western Europe. But I think even more a threat than the Soviet Union was that there were very powerful socialist and communist movements in all of Western Europe. Yeah, and and they and they were, you know, in Greece, the Americans installed a help, a dictator, a fascist dictatorship. Even yeah, even Harry Truman. Yeah, absolutely. Even Harry Truman was, yeah, he was, he put the CIA in Italy. He put him in Greece. Yeah, yeah. They supported Franco in Spain, a fascist in Portugal. Uh, so, so, but again, I'm going through the eyes of Ellsberg primarily here, but there's other documentation here. I just saw yesterday, I'll have to send this to you, a document that shows that most of the estimation of the Soviet military strength, or I shouldn't, I don't know, I, I'm exaggerating, I know about most, I think the quote was an important part, actually came from the defense industry, giving information to the Pentagon. And, and there's, there's some yeah. studies that were generated by the defense industry to exaggerate Soviet strength. But at any rate, I think- Well, a lot of the equipment was, was ours. <laughs> a lot of their equipment was ours, the bombers. The bombers in Iran that landed for the Tehran conference that brought Stalin to the conference. They were U.S. bombers with Soviet insignia. <laughs> okay. So, but I'm taught when you start getting into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, it, it is clear the Soviet Union is not a military threat 
to Western Europe or the United States. Uh, go ahead. You move ahead. Now, once the Soviet Union f collapses, and now to quote, quote Gore Vidal, I said this in this other interview, but I'll say it in, Vidal says, the whole point of NATO was to fight these godless communists. Well, Jesus is back in Moscow. You know, Putin's very close to the Russian Orthodox Church. The, the, you know, the, the, what is the point of a NATO now? Russia's a mid-sized power. It is not a... You're, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> you're preaching to the well, choir. But, but, okay, but there is a point. The point is, and I think, yeah, I think I, this was the point almost from early on, because, you know, again, to quote Ellsberg, he says the Cold War, he finally came to the conclusion, was essentially a, a commercial subsidy to the aerospace industry. NATO is a way to enforce American military arms sales on and, and, and keep Europe under the uh, umbrella of Western, um, not Western, American arms manufacturers. And, and that's really the point of NATO. And that's and even the fight over the of Eastern Europe and Ukraine is to maintain those countries as part of the American sphere of market influence, primarily not only, but primarily for arms uh, dealing. Well, we used to say in the military as, as, as early as my memory serves me right, um, 1969, 1970, when we were talking about Western Europe, that the purpose of NATO, and this was this sort of slid off every soldier's tongue, was to keep the Russians out, the Germans divided, and the U.S. in. Well, that in was for all the things you're talking about, in addition to perhaps some people who thought it was security. It was for all the things you're saying. It was for domination of Europe to the extent we could, and how better to do that than be the prime member in a NATO alliance that included them all. And to ensure that the, the Soviets couldn't get in any further than they already were, and to keep Germany divided because they'd caused the last one and the one before that. <laughs> and now, if. And that's all gone. That's all gone. <laughs> so, what are we doing? And now, when you're, when, when, you know, if you're German or frankly any of these countries, uh, you look at what's going on in the United States. And you could be looking at a President Trump again in 2024 or utter chaos. And you require your energy uh, from Russia. I mean, Jesus, why wouldn't you actually, you know, yeah. you know, not look not want to be part of this? Yeah, look at the Germans right now. I, I had a call from Berlin today. Want to know if I do an interview with this particular. It's a small kind of niche newspaper, but it's a very good one. And I said, sure. Um, and we talked for a few minutes and I, she was a little bit surprised because I think because I said, uh, I agree with Germany's position. I agree 100 percent with Germany's position. I hope you hold it. You know? Now, that might be it, that might be a worked out diplomatic ploy too, to give Putin a feeling that he's got a refuge somewhere or he's got a partner somewhere. Uh, I think he was looking toward Macron for that, but to have Germany is even better. So I don't know if it's a dip. I, I'm my problem with this interpretation of diplomacy that I'm, I'm sort of giving you a little shot at is I don't think we're that good. I think we've lost the ability to do what I call exquisite diplomacy. So that's my big doubt in all of this. When I hear these kinds of 
reverberations that we're, we're really doing this and we're talking and we're each seeking leverage over the other and so forth, but we're ultimately going to resolve this with talks. I love that. I pray for that, but I don't think we have the skill. So then flip it to the other side. And I, I, I mentioned a bit of this in the beginning. Why is Putin doing what he's doing? And I, and I have to say, I think it's not unjustified. Of course, it's justified that to, to say Ukraine should stay out of NATO. They should roll back uh, troops in some of the f other former Soviet republics. Uh, there's no way any, any country that has any ability to keep uh, troops off its border wouldn't do it, and especially a major regional power. It's entirely reasonable. On the other hand, so what? What are they going to do if Ukraine's in NATO? What, they can't do anything to Russia. Even if Ukraine was in NATO, there's still the donks, uh, the area of eastern Ukraine that's essentially getting closer, you know, has autonomy. They had the Minsk agreement, and I guess it was 2014, where the Ukrainian government actually agreed uh, to uh, uh, creating this area as a, an autonomous area. And, and, and over time, it's going to get closer and closer into the integration with the Soviet, Soviet the Russian economy. Uh, there's nothing anyone's going to do about that, in NATO or not out of NATO. That's happening. So what's the point of playing this game? Unless the game is to see if you can peel Germany off and see what happens to this, uh, you know, create some... Well, I, I, take, your, I take your points. I, I think you have to go up a little bit higher and say, what are this very clever chess master-like KGB, FSB, NKVD, GRU imbued man's objectives, strategically speaking. I think they're threefold. One is to sever the transatlantic link. He does not like the influence the United States has, not just on his near abroad, but on Europe in general. Second, to dismember NATO, doing a very good job of accomplishing both of those objectives, by the way. Trump almost handed him the first one. Um, George W. Bush started it by in the Oval Office saying F-U-C-K Schroeder, the German chancellor at the time. And the only reason that relationship survived, I'm serious, was Colin Powell and Joska Fischer, the German foreign minister, because they swore they would keep it together despite Bush and with Fischer despite Schroeder, because Schroeder hated Bush's guts. So the relationship was fraying even then. Nord Stream 2, the pipeline and its completion has made the relationship fray even more now. So Putin wants to sever that, principally because of Germany, but all of Europe in general. He doesn't care about Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. He doesn't care about Montenegro. He cares about Germany, the power of Europe. Um, and so he wants to do that. And then the third objective is to make the EU feckless. And he's Got a lot of help there because politically speaking, they're making themselves feckless. And the economic and financial aspects of that just follow on naturally, I think. So he's doing right well. He's doing right well. So one thing I would be saying to him right now, if I were on Mars looking down and you know, advising these people playing checkers on the one side and chess on the other, I'd say, hey, Ch Mr. Chess Master, don't go too far and don't for any reason whatsoever, start a war. Same thing I'd say to Xi Jinping, but I think Xi Jinping understands this. You're winning. 
<laughs> you know, so don't start a war because a war will cause you all to lose, perhaps hugely, if you go nuclear. And there's always a potential for that uh, when you're going up against nuclear powers like Russia and China. So, you know, that's my advice. You're winning. Don't start a war. You know. Yeah, there was a quote, I think, in Politico from some Russian expert who was brought up in Russia. She said something like, uh, the almost war is dividing NATO. Actual war would unite NATO. Uh, yes, much exactly. better position leaving it. But I, I think it's really important to make another point. The way the press is playing this, the way the Biden administration, the Republicans, all the Western foreign policy establishment, this is all because Putin hates democracy. It's such bullshit. This is nothing to do. He couldn't care less how governments get chosen. Of course, hates the United States. Well, he wants free the Russian, first of all, the Putin's government, the state, just like the American government state, represents the Russian oligarchy just as much as the American government represents the American oligarchy. And the American oligarchy have created this whole zone of American influence in Europe, and they take measures to keep the Russians out of it as much as they possibly can. And and it's not just Europe. You know that. It's South America. Middle East. It's Africa. It's the Middle East. Yeah. And that and it's it's our dominion. This is a fight <laughs> between oligarchies of which the American has been the dominant global, you know, empire. Somebody critiqued me because I in one interview I gave, I said, I don't want to exaggerate calling this US empire as if the other countries aren't part of global capitalism. They don't all have their own interests. They're just small. Jesus, if Canada could be the global superpower, Canada would jump at it in a microsecond. <laughs> it's the nature of the system. But Canada is what it is. It has to be a junior partner, and you know that's, that's life. But regionally, Russia has the size and clout of a mid-sized power to be far more influential in all of Europe, and the Americans don't want it, and the oligarchs are fighting each other over market share, the same way Coke and, Coke and Pepsi fight each other over market share. I don't disagree with you. I, I think the fear on our part should be more in the deterioration of our economic power than in the mounting uh, power of Moscow because Moscow's economic situation and its financial situation alongside that is fragile, far more fragile than say Xi Jinping's is, though there's some cracks showing up in that now too. Um, our problem is we're doing it to ourselves. Our problem is we are destroying our own economic power. We're destroying our own reach with that economic power because we can't seem to get our act together in terms of what it is we want to do and how we want to do it over the next generation and certainly over the next uh, 70 years. And one of the biggest aspects of that is the climate crisis. Uh, if we don't, you know, the rest of the world can sit around and watch us disappear literally if they want to, because we're doing it to ourselves, like most empires in history have done it to themselves. We're cutting our own throat slowly but surely we're bleeding all over the place. We're bleeding in the Middle East. We're bleeding in South America, bleeding all over from Venezuela and what we did there. Now, virtually the entire subcontinent hates our guts. We're bleeding over little Cuba. You know, Cuba wouldn't even be thinking about 
the Russians possibly coming back in. Putin even couldn't threaten that. The, the Cubans hate the Russians. One of the things I discovered from 2009 to 14 or so, when I was in Havana year after year, they hate the Russians. The reason they're even opening up to anything like Putin suggested that he might put missiles in Cuba or whatever, is that they pulled out, Biden pulled out, Trump pulled out of the rapprochement that Obama had created. And they're furious with us and rightfully so. And we're still got the blockade on it. And it's even tightened, Trump tightened it majorly. So we're creating our own imperial demise, even as I speak. The United States has a budget that began under Obama, continued with Trump, continues with Biden. Over, maybe it's now, I think, a trillion and a half dollars to quote-unquote modernize the nuclear weapons arsenal. The Russians are doing the same thing, apparently also a trillion dollars. Now the Chinese, because of the Russian and American, uh, the Chinese had been much more modest in, in terms of their investment in nuclear weapons. Now there's a lot of talk that Chinese are feeling such pressure by the extent of the, of the advancements of nuclear weapons, uh, including tactical, quote unquote tactical, uh, what do they call it, dial a yield, where you can actually start having supposedly serious conversations about using nuclear weapons in, in the context of a, co a supposed conventional war. where And they are having those conversations again now, both in Russia and in the United States. I mean, the insanity of this whole thing. I mean, it, it takes me back to this, these stories of Lyndon Johnson in, in Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, when they knew they were gonna lose and they knew it was pointless. And they knew there wasn't really going to be any big domino effect. And Johnson says, according to the stories, if, and tell me if I'm wrong, because you probably know the story better than me, he pulls his pants down and shows his dick and says, look how big it is. And that's what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but there. I, I, apparently that's a real story. There, there are similar things to that. I mean, he's sitting there in front of McGeorge Bundy. Walt Rostow and I think Mac McNamara, and they're telling him about this colossal bombing campaign, which turns out to drop more iron bombs on North Vietnam than we dropped in World War II. And we killed tens of thousands of Vietnamese civilians. And Johnson says in his old style, he says, oh, ho, meaning Ho Chi Minh, ain't gonna be moved by no bombs, showing that LBJ knew that the bombing campaign was not going to do squat with regard to this country. That was what it was. It didn't have industry to bomb. It didn't have factories to bomb. What it had was young men and women who were willing to die for their country in South Vietnam or wherever. And LBJ knew that. But what did he do right after he said, oh, oh ain't going to be moved by no bombs? He approved rolling thunder, the bombing campaign, and he approved up to 500,000 troops in Vietnam. I mean, come on. And I'll go back to this wrestling analogy. Uh, in the context of all of this posturing and huffing and puffing and pissing match, which is so at the heart and soul, not only of the American military industrial complex and the, and the Pentagon, but also the Russians, and, and others, you know, the whole psyche 
is you have to show how strong and tough you are. What is it that, you know, the best defense is to show you have the offense. And I guess Dean Etchton called it prestige. Yeah. And then he defined prestige as the shadow of power. Well, what Bundy, Rostow, McNamara, and Johnson do is they define prestige as, well, if we lose in Vietnam, even if we cut and run from Vietnam, and our allies, principally the NATO allies, here we are back to NATO again, um, recognize that we're cutting and running, we'll lose prestige. We'll lose that shadow of power. Yeah, when uh, when last I interviewed Ellsberg, uh, and this is going to be in this documentary I, I'm doing with him, uh, he pulled out a document, which is a 1964 study much of which is still classified. And he decided to read it to us anyway. In fact, he warned us and said, if you even listen to this, you could be charged the same way I could. He asked us if we wanted to keep filming. We said, yeah. And it's the minutes of uh, a 1958 meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff where they discuss the fact that Eisenhower had authorized the use of nuclear weapons against China if the Chinese... Uh, decided to use military means to retake Taiwan. And and apparently that was when yeah that was when they were having the battles. 19, 1958, yeah. And and the, and the, yeah, they're having battles over the island. Yeah. The Quimoy and Matsu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and the conversation is one of the generals says uh, uh, what happens if we use nuclear weapons even if it's just small you know amounts right on the coast where they're fire where Mao Zedong's army is firing from and one of the generals says uh, well if if we do use nukes there uh, won't the Soviets nuke something and they, one general says well they'll probably nuke Chiang Kai-shek they'll probably drop a bomb on Chiang Kai-shek's head well if they do that says the other general uh, well w that means we have to retaliate against the Soviet Union and then another one says, well, it, doesn't that mean all-out war? And, and, and the first general says, yeah, but the alternative is worse. What was the alternative? Losing prestige. Yep, yep. Uh, this, yep. Is, this is yep. an You'll insanity. Some, some students of war, some historians will tell you that that is more often a cause of conflict than any other single factor. People worried about what is the equivalent at the time of their prestige and the democratic party foreign policy establishment is every bit as imbued with all of this and, and because that's where the money is it's 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 part of their identity and it's part of where their their flow of cash comes from which is why you had people like jack reed from rhode island voting over and over for that ndaa that's just so much polluting money it's pitiful and taking money out of the mouths of babies, literally. I'm not using that just because I want to be impactful. It is taking money out of all manner of domestic programs that we desperately need um, to feed this machine, this war machine, which incidentally hasn't won a war since the first Gulf War, and that only since World War II. I mean, no, 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 you're forgetting the other very significant. Oh, yeah. Granada, Granada, Granada. Yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't call Granada. that. <laughs> no, that, I think that's really important part of this thing is that every major yeah. Panama, the, the, this yeah, whole Panama, yeah, this whole, yeah, Panama, this whole massive military machine has accomplished next to nothing. It's, it's anyway, that's another story. Uh, 
maybe one of the things that was the most disgusting thing I, I heard in the last week was uh, an American uh, member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and then, I'm sorry, not an American, a Democrat member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and then a Republican, both on these talk shows, saying the same thing, which was, we have to send small, lots of small arms to the Ukrainians so they can wage guerrilla war against the Russians. So, so the Ukrainians are supposed to have their country turned into another Syria and have factions fighting for the Russians, against the Russians, and, and destroy their entire society because the Americans don't want to say Ukraine won't be part of NATO. Yep. It's, it's, it's a nightmare. It, it truly is a nightmare. And it, as you've posited earlier, it's a nightmare based on, I'm not there, I'm not going to bleed, but I'm going to make money. That's what it's based on. All right. Well, I'm not sure what else you say after that, because it's, it's the case. And, and the problem is, is that the identity on all sides of this, uh, but most importantly on the American side, is they're so afraid of looking weak in the world right now, and especially Biden. You know, because he's so weak domestically, politically now, uh, he, to look weak in the face of uh, Putin, uh, it, it, it makes it even more dangerous. Is he going to, you know, is, is that going to inspire a kind of rash act we might not see otherwise? There's a movie out there now called uh, Munich on the Edge of War. I watched it night before last. It's an incredibly good movie. And it it revisits the situation of Chamberlain, which good historians are already doing. What Chamberlain essentially did was sacrifice his prime ministership and in many ways, his political place in history to gain another year. They thought they might gain two for Britain to rearm and for Churchill to come in and fight the war they knew was coming with that rearmed Britain. And Churchill and, and, and Chamberlain had an agreement. And they knew that. And, and Chamberlain was truly an honorable man, a Brit who fell on his sword for his country. Um, I, I, I say that simply to remind people that there is a possibility of high, high ethics, high morality, if you will, in political leadership. We are utterly devoid of it. And one of the things that has made us so is this incredible pollution of money, money generated by the national security state, money passed from the national security state to its political leadership, money, money, money. And that's not atypical of empires collapsing when that sort of thing happens. And I'm, you know, I'm not just talking about Britain. I'm not just talking about recent empire, the Third Reich, for example, and Speer and Hitler and all those guys who were making money hand over foot. The Swiss, the Swedes were making money hand over foot. Even some of our people were off of World War II and off the travesties that occurred in that war. That's what it's all about. It's about money. We need to back away from that or we're going the same way they went. Mm. Yeah, the banality of evil. It is just I remember interviewing a long time you a long time ago when you when you really realized how much the Iraq war was just about oil. That is just so goddamn banal. And yeah. 
but uh, certainly all these, you know, and, and older times and maybe even in the 1800s, but certainly before, at least people believe there were higher ideals than just grabbing shit. I, I mean, I don't think there it ever really was about the higher ideals even then, but a lot of people kind of believed it. Uh, I don't know. Well, as Grant said about people like Gould and others who tried to corner the gold market and tried to get the railroads in their back pocket and everything else, there are some bad people in this country. <laughs> people accuse Grant of, of Grant of having the most corrupt administration in, in, a, in American history, at least until that point. Um, and and I, my study of Grant is he did everything he possibly could to thwart the people who were around him. But it was growing so big after the Civil War sort of made the federal government the fountain of all money. Um, it, even he couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> Two terms. And he, he, he did do more about it than people give him credit for. But he realized that we were turning into what we are now, full-fleshed. Um, I usually am going to continue to end my interviews these days with, with this. Um, find people who are doing on-the-ground organizing amongst ordinary people in communities all over the country, but particularly in communities that tend to vote either for corporate Democrats and particularly for Trump. Uh, there's people doing really good organizing in these areas uh, and, and trying to uh, support candidates who are against both uh, parties' military agenda and, and for a real climate agenda. So I'm going to do more and more interviews on the analysis with people who are doing that kind of work, uh, because uh, as as dim or uh, dim or uh, as uh, terrifying as many of our conversations end up being, uh, there is some hope, and uh, the real hope is amongst these people that are doing this kind of organizing, especially the young ones. The, the young ones are very impressive, and they're mad, they're angry, and they're working. And I keep telling them. You're the hope. You're the savior. you got to keep it up. All right. Thanks a lot, Larry. Sure. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please, there's a donate button. Subscribe, share, and see you again soon.